Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. From the day they're born, talk to them like they are adults. Use full sentences. Narrate. That's how I describe it, is narrating your world. I'm Allie Wolf, an Emmy-winning journalist and mom. I love interviewing women and experts who inspire us to create fulfilling lives and careers while embracing the messy and beautiful reality of being a mom. This is the Mom's Calling Podcast. Welcome back to Mom's Calling. Today, I have a powerful episode covering some pretty serious topics. It's really kind of hard to sum up in just a quick title or intro, but we discuss pregnancy loss, how to handle grief or discuss it with others. We also talk about our role as parents and how it's really our job to be our children's first teacher during those early years before they start school, which sounds kind of intimidating, but my guest walks us through it all. She is Cara Terrell, founder of Core 4 Parenting, an online community course and coaching platform for parents and caregivers that follows the developmental path of the young child while educating, empowering, and engaging parents and caregivers to be their child's brain architect between birth and five years old, setting them up for success in school and life. I also want to just give a trigger warning. As you heard, there is discussion of miscarriage. So just be warned. Kara's first pregnancy ended in an incredibly devastating way. She explains that at the top of the interview. Enjoy this conversation. Kara, welcome to Mom's Calling. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So am I. And I want to start with your journey to becoming a mom because you have a unique story and it is difficult, but um, I think it's really important. So if you would, I'd love to start with that. Yeah, I do have a unique story in every way. Um, I'm a lifetime lover of littles. I grew up with people asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer was a mom. I just knew like that was somehow engaging with and enriching small people's lives was the purpose of my life, even as I was growing up. So my first foyer into motherhood was particularly challenging because I had, um, I was in my young twenties, I was 23 and I had a picture perfect pregnancy filled with all the beautiful dreams that all pregnant people have in their heads of what it's going to be like after that baby's born. And at 40 weeks and one day we delivered a beautiful stillborn baby girl. I can't even imagine what that was like. And even years and years later, I'm sure it's still difficult to talk about. So first, thank you for being so open. I think, you know, we were talking a little before this, that it's a really important conversation to have because miscarriages and loss, it happens to a lot of women and yours is particularly heartbreaking because it was at 40 weeks, but you know, what are your lessons and what did you learn throughout that grief process? Wow. What a grief process it was. Um, one, do the work, right? Grief can be delayed, but it cannot be denied. It will follow you. It will stop you from putting the best parts of yourself back together so that you can move forward. So, so do your grief work, find your grief people. Um, I'm a grief warrior. I'm here if you need me. Um, also, it's really important to let go of the old style of thinking that you have to accept what's happened to you. One in four pregnancies ends in loss, um, whether that be in an early stage, a middle stage, or the end of the pregnancy. That's a lot of moms struggling, a lot of moms with heartbreak and broken dreams. Um, so do not feel like you have to accept this. 
I personally chose to integrate our Emma Grace's life and spirit and being into our family's experience. And we still do. We still have little ornaments for her at Christmas every year. We still celebrate her birthday. We still let her have her own space in our hearts, separate from those of the sisters that followed. That is really beautiful. And it seems like you've come so far, but I'm sure it's still difficult. And like you said, one in four women um, experience this. I mean, I'm sure that everybody listening either has been through it themselves or knows someone, if not multiple people. But another thing that struck me before we started talking is you, you sent me this beautiful article you wrote. And I felt this pang of, oh my gosh, did I, did I say something wrong? And because it's difficult to have the words to say, because I think in conversations, especially with people that we don't know well, we can ask these seemingly innocent questions. You know, you could say, oh, is this your oldest? Is this your first? And it could bring up pain or the biggest one I think a lot of people get is, oh, are you trying? You're going to have kids soon and not know that somebody really has experienced a lot of loss. So do you have any good ways for others to kind of sensitively deal with this without the kind of backpedaling their words? Absolutely. Um, This is something that I talk about, you know, this parenting personal development journey as part of my life and then part of my life as a mom and part of my life now as a coach and a teacher for other parents. This defines you, right? This loss defines you like nothing else. So you have to find your scripts and you have to find them confidently so that you don't have to think when the emotion strikes, when someone asks asks you a question that triggers that reaction, you already have your go-to words ready to go. And for me, I came up with the rule of three. So if somebody asked me a question, is this your first? I would answer them with what they want to hear three times. Yes. If they have multiple questions in a row that they're asking me about my motherhood or my parenthood, after three questions, I figure they're invested enough in the conversation that I can tell them the truth. And then if they want to hear that truth, we'll move forward. And if they don't, trust me, the conversation comes to a screeching halt right then and there. I think that's really smart because you can't control the fact that people are going to ask questions or conversations are going to happen that will bring up thoughts on your on your end. And instead of having a reaction to what other people say emotionally, kind of having the preparation to protect yourself, I think is a really smart approach. You know, you went on to have two more children and I can imagine there was a lot of conflicting emotion entering parenthood after, or even going through pregnancy after the first experience. So how did you work through your thoughts getting ready for the second and third child. So for your listeners, um, know that my loss is 21 years ago mm-hmm. and my kids who are living and thriving in this world are 17 and 19. Um, and so I do come from a slightly different generation of pregnancy options, but I would say what happened for me, as I said, I really, really have to make sure that I am mentally doing the work so that I'm not expecting my next child to meet any of the expectations I had for my first, that I'm going to honor their own journey and their own spirit. And they get their very own personality opportunities. That was huge. And to do that, I had to find out the gender of my child. And back then it was more of like some people did and some people didn't. So if you've lost 
I highly recommend finding out the gender of the next, because if you've lost a girl and you have another girl, there can be a lot of conflicting emotions there. If you've lost a boy and you have in your head that it'd be easier to have another boy, but you're pregnant with a girl, deal with those psychosocial pieces before the baby comes. So essentially, like the more information you can have, the better you can distinguish or kind of prepare for an experience that is going to be different no matter what. Yeah. And again, I mentioned you that you wrote this beautiful piece and it's posted on Medium, which I will link. But the quote that stood out at the end and it's highlighted, as you said, the measure of grief can only ever be as deep as the measure of our love. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that quote, because I think it's just such a universal statement for any type of grief and um, talk a little about what it means to you. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the measure of our grief can only be equivalent to the measure of our love is, like you said, a global statement. Mm hmm. And what I find is if we can wrap our head even a little bit in those moments of acute grief around the idea that I feel this broken because I love another human being so much, it gives us a glimmer of hope. And that's what we need. I did um, a lot of work. I did my own work. I did therapy. I then started a support group for other parents who were going through this because I was at a different stage of the journey. And I was that beacon of hope, right? So if we can provide our own spark of hope by knowing we have this much love inside of us, and because we have so much love inside of us, we hurt this badly, then we know that we can love that big again. Yeah. I love that perspective so much. And so with that, I want to, we started off very deep and very heavy. So let's just back up and talk about your career story. So take us back, tell us how your career began and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So my career began where I, where I began here at the, in this interview, which is a lifetime lover of littles. And that I told everyone I wanted to be a mom, but you know, that's, you can't go get your degree in motherhood. Um, <laughs> although I'm working to change that, right. Mm -hmm. We're working to give people a parenting toolkit that makes them feel like they're getting a degree in parenthood. After getting her master's in education, Kara became a teacher for preschool and kindergarten. I loved it. But she quickly noticed something. That every year I'd get a new class of kids and they would come in all showing the same struggles in different areas of my classroom. Like they all knew their ABCs, one, two, threes, colors, numbers. <laughs> but what they were struggling with was their social emotional regulation. They were struggling to know how to be an interpersonal communicator with their student next peer next to them. They struggled to control their physical body. And I said, I'm not their first teacher. Their parents are. And it occurred to me because I, at the time, had very young kids as well, but most parents 85% of their children's foundational brain development is done by five. After teaching for years, she took a break and returned, hoping things improved. Same stories over and over. And I thought, all right, that's enough of that. She then spent a decade as a nanny working with kids from birth and testing her method, which she called core for parenting. She became an entrepreneur during the pandemic. COVID happened and I said, well, the world is clearly ready for this and they need it now. And parents are struggling now. And they've been asked to parent in a way that they weren't yesterday, today. So that's how it happened. And it was almost an overnight decision. And it was a year ago 
that we really got rocking and rolling. So core four parenting is for people who are in their third trimester of pregnancy, and it's a developmental program that leads you, guides you, supports you all the way through the developmental ages and phases of your child till five years old when they start kindergarten. Okay. What are a couple of things that parents can think about when they are trying to be good parents and, and prepare their children for the world? Because it is a little bit daunting to think about how much effect what you say and how you treat your children has on them. It is. Um, well, first, I'd like to say that this this consciousness shift, you know, that's happened where parents like yourself and so many others are saying, whoa, I now know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. I now see what I didn't see before, right? Because before we can take action to change anything, we have to know that, that it needs to be done to parents who have nine, 10, 11 months old. And they're, they're just starting to see that shift where this isn't my baby anymore. This is a person. And this person is all of a sudden showing me all their skills that they already know and how to indicate things without language and that they have opinions. (laughs) Um, That didn't start last night during their sleep time. They have been putting together this picture of how the world works inside their home environment long before that. And that invisible journey, the, those the, I call them the invisible learning years, is where it's hard for us as parents because we are of a, a generation where we see it to believe it. And I'm asking parents to believe it before they can see it and to change some of their foundational choices. So then what they see and hear when it happens is mind-blowing and just really creates that family environment that they're looking for and the learning opportunities for their kids. So, you know, kids as early as 12 weeks old are starting to put together cause and effect thinking when I, it's still very sensory, like you said, right? We have to survive those first transformative transitional three months, you know, that fourth trimester is real, but then we can be showing them when my body feels this way, when I hear a voice that sounds like this, when I'm swaddled in this particular way, the outcome is something that they can latch onto. And it's it's really mind-blowing to think that their brains are ready for that type of connective thinking that early, but science tells us it's absolutely true. Okay, before we continue with the show, I want to talk a little about Noom. Noom uses the latest in behavioral science to empower people to take control of their health for good through a combination of psychology, technology, and human coaching on their platform to help millions of users meet their personal health and wellness goals. A lot of people face pressure to change themselves to fit other people's expectations, and the more freeing solution is to find things that work for you. Noom understands that everyone's weight loss journey is unique and what works for someone else doesn't necessarily mean it'll work for you. That's why Noom's approach adapts to your lifestyle. It's flexible and focuses on progress, not perfection, allowing you to work toward goals at a pace that's comfortable for you. Noom Weight makes it easy to start your weight loss journey and stay on track. Personalized lessons help you gain confidence and practical knowledge. One-on-one coaching and a cognitive behavioral approach teaches you how to be mindful of your habits. 
75% of Noom Weight users finished the program, and more than 60% that engaged with the program kept the weight off for a year or more. So start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial at Noom.com slash believe. That's Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash believe, B-L-E-A-V. What are some small things that we can change as parents, um, no matter where you are in that kind of zero to five year Mm -hmm. range? What are some small things we can either do or say, or are there some things that are unspoken? Is it our relationships at home that the kids are picking up on or, or is it just everything? Well, it certainly is, but everything is too overwhelming for us. So, so yeah, we need to break it down into two categories of attentive parenting right? The first is slowing down enough to observe our children for who they are, for who they were born into the world as their natural gifts, their natural characteristics and tendencies, and not trying to make them fit our space, but observing it and allowing it and meeting them where they are. Another big part of the work is slowing down enough to realize who we are. And as adults in a fast paced world who've grown up in one, often we don't know. We don't know our natural relationship characteristics and the way that we get triggered. So we need to figure those out too. And then the magic happens. As long as we are being true to our natural selves and allowing our children to be true to their natural selves, the relationship solidifies that early bond and that core four connector relationship of mutual trust and respect and open communication and honesty just grows. So that's the foundational piece. Then we do need to use some scientific strategies. Making plans is a great strategy. Children love being inside small contained boxes that have a beginning and an end especially for people who are home now, whether they're home and chose to continue to be home and homeschool or they're home and they are working their corporate job from home. Or if you're home and so are your kids and they're under five years old, making a plan is going to be your best friend. First, we're going to do this. Then we're going to do this. Then we're going to do this other thing. Within that, you can teach your children so many skills. Time management, foundational thinking, order of operations, delayed gratification goes on and on and on. Yeah. And I was going to say, um, because the zero to five range for a big chunk of that, the children are not verbal. And so how important is it to talk? And I've heard that it's really important from day one to tell, you know, kind of I think I heard it as the comparison of being a sports announcer and kind of saying everything that you're doing. So how important is it for us to kind of lay it out verbally or is it just simply important to have that plan? Because I imagine kids may not know that there is that structure. Um, So how do you convey that to them? So the plan is definitely more of an action item. Mm -hmm. right? A proactive approach to make sure that everybody gets what they need without people falling apart and melting down. Mm -hmm. Um, The intentional language piece is massive. And yes, from the day they're born, talk to them like they are adults, use full sentences, narrate. That's how I describe it, is narrating your world. Use emotional vocabulary, not just about them, but also about yourself, 
Can we have an example of emotional vocabulary or maybe like what is emotional versus not? Sure. So emotional vocabulary is exactly what it sounds like. The words that describe the emotions that you're feeling and supporting our children to be able to label their emotions is one of the very first skills that one, we can do and two, we need them to have as they grow out of just that physical body sensory experience and move toward more of a cognitive uh, body, mind, soul, all three coming together in a connected state. Um, So to be able to say to them, I am so frustrated right now. I thought I put the laundry soap in the machine, but I forgot. And now I have to run this again, right? Giving them examples of your humanness. And that gives you the opportunity to be their mirror as well. Mm. When you have a nine month old who's struggling to crawl, but almost there, you know, you can say, wow, you look really frustrated right now. I can see your body is struggling and trying really, really hard. Yes. Okay. So I have sort of a situational question. I think it's a a pretty common situation for a lot of parents of younger kids, maybe not school age kids yet. um, They're home with them. And during this COVID pandemic, if they don't have siblings, they have not been around a lot of other children for longer periods of time. So how do you recommend preparing the child for that first social interaction that may be a little delayed in this case and kind of dealing with it in the moment. So for example, if my daughter was like grabbing onto toys that weren't hers and not, and no, she doesn't understand that and not understanding that she has to share. So they might not be ready to understand those concepts, but how do you deal with that in a way that is helpful? So they learn, but also not shaming them. Right. Well, first of all, what you just observed is step one, the mindset and the, and the perspective applied to, I know what has not been a traditional trajectory for my child, mm-hmm. right? So we have to give them some level of forgiveness there. It's a bit like having a baby at 34 weeks and doing the adjusted age, right? We're doing an adjusted social emotional age here. Um, so we're going to give them a little leeway there, but at 18 months, your child, although not able to put together communicative speech, their receptive language is very nearly complete, meaning they understand what you're saying, the implications of what you're saying, and the expectations that you are communicating to them. So in this situation, as you re-enter that interpersonal space, I would say forecast. Have proactive conversations with your child that sound a lot like, we're going to go play with another kid your own age today. You haven't had a chance to do lots of that. When we play with other kids, we share toys. Let me show you how. This is my turn. This is your turn. Practice with your child, moving the toy back and forth between the two of you. You have a really unique relationship with your child where there's trust. So they'll give it to you and you can give it back and say, oh, now it's your turn. Oh, now it's my turn. Play it, practice it, forecast it for them. This may not prevent what you talked about in the moment, but it will give you an anchor. Remember when you and I did this? Remember when we took turns? First, it was my toy, then it was your toy. How about I sit with you and we all take turns? And now you can be that human grown-up mediator where you're having your own turn and so is the other child and so is your child. So it's just a level, it's almost like holding, holding that safety net for them really high up until 
they show that you can release it down a notch. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. And I think so much of it is coming from us, right? In our reaction. And I love just viewing it as your relationship with them. Without being shaming, like coming across as shaming parents for what they're doing wrong. What are some of those mistakes that parents can make that can really add up over time? um, So they can try to catch them before they enter school. This is a big question. Where I want to go with this is reactive versus responsive parenting. As parents, we tend to react. Mm -hmm. A reaction is emotionally charged. It comes from an emotional trigger. There's no thought involved with it. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. And the language we tend to use in our reactive voices is often the language that we brought with us from our own childhoods, okay? Responsive parenting is when we take a beat and engage our cognition literally by taking a half a second and letting the emotion happen and then switching over to our brain, we can no longer react. We have now decided um, that we are going to be the creators of our response. And responsive parenting uses very different language because we've already shifted our mindset in that millisecond break. What does it look like to have a responsive reaction? Let's take your sharing example, right? Okay. In reactive parenting mode, you're there, the other mom or dad is there, the two children are there, and you're already in a heightened emotional state because you're anticipating this is going to happen. Reactive parenting sounds a lot like, no, don't do that. We share toys. Okay. Responsive parenting sounds like first you stop and you breathe mm-hmm. and you think, you put yourself in your child's shoes. Responsive parenting sounds like turn taking looks like this. It looks like you're having trouble sharing this toy. Let me help. Sharing toys is hard. We have not practiced this with lots of other kids. What it means is that we have to be able to detach ourselves from the higher emotional social expectations of being with that other parent. We're in it for the kid. Right. That is such a click for me too, because I think the stress is what is this parent going, other parent going to think that my child is taking a toy and instead focusing on a child is such a like light bulb for me. So this is so, so helpful. And I think it's really just, it's like training our minds on how to have that good response. And I think once you get it, I'm sure it comes naturally. But for me right now, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. So I want to just get to one more lighthearted question, your best and worst advice. My best advice for new parents is to get to know who their child is. Just really like let go of the expectations of what the world is telling you they should and shouldn't be doing and look at them and observe them. They will lead you If it's a significant enough issue that you need to seek a professional, you'll know. Mm -hmm. But adding that extra layer of stress and that extra layer of expectation only pulls you away further from this magical space that you really want to be part of. And gosh, the worst piece of advice that I ever received, you know, I can't really think of an example where I felt really, really like, wow, this person's telling me something that has no value. No, I think it's good because I think 
if somebody's giving you advice, it typically comes from a good place. That's it's right. just, you know, sometimes you get really funny answers. And I think even if it is a funny answer, the person who gave that advice probably had a really good intention. So I have a question from my previous guest. And he said, if you try to start up a job after you were a mom and you tried to get back into it, did people still take you seriously or did they kind of just slough it off and go, ah, she's just doing this because she's just dabbling in it. You know, I have a really cool, a really cool answer for this. I told you that I intentionally went back to be a nanny so that I could test all these methodologies and honestly get my hands back on tiny people again, because that's just what I love. So while I was raising other people's kids from birth up, my kids were in their tween and teen years. And I remember people saying to me, I would go with such joy and say to them, I'm a nanny now. Like I felt such pride and such respect and such gratitude that another person would trust me with their most precious beings on earth. And they would look at me and they'd be like, you left a teaching job to be a nanny. It's um, crazy. So the difference in stigma between two things that are not that different. Right. I had with, if you're teaching preschool, What's the difference really? We're talking about same age grouped children, different job title, and it came with a totally different perspective from the world. Now I'm strong enough that I was able to say, this is my most favorite thing in the world. And the fact that I'm getting paid to do this blows my mind. So thank you. Um, yes, I am a nanny, but I, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is for people who are shifting positions, especially now, if it is bringing you joy, then it's the right place to be and just own that. Yeah, that is great. That was a great answer. And now the last thing is just telling the audience where they can find you and where they can get in touch and learn more about Core 4 Parenting. Absolutely. So we are at core4parenting.com. That's our website. Um, and at Core 4 Parenting across the socials for our handle. And I highly encourage your listeners to, um, to read a blog post on the website called the 5 to 1 and Done method for negotiating transition with toddlers. Okay, perfect. Well, this was such a great conversation. I appreciate everything that you shared. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and letting this honest conversation evolve. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, I want to hear from you. Send me an email to momscallingpod at gmail.com. If you like the show, be sure to rate and review this podcast. See you next week for another episode of Mom's Calling on the Believe Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.